Before the interview starts, I want to let you know about a nice discount code that I got given from Dr. Lewis. It is Biohackers Lab 10. That's Biohackers Lab and the number 10 at the end of it. If you use that at his website, lewisinstitute.com.au, you'll get a nice discount on his guided meditation program. Welcome to Biohackers Lab, a place where we talk to smart people who are figuring out how to improve health in interesting ways. Join us to discover how you can biohack your life, your body, starting today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Biohackers Lab. I'm your host, Gary Kerwin, and on today's episode, I have Dr. Daniel Lewis. Dr. Lewis is a rheumatologist and consultant physician from Melbourne, Australia, who is a musculoskeletal arthritis and pain management specialist. He has more than 25 years experience in patient care, and is focused on using the best scientific evidence available to guide treatment decisions. This includes, where possible, recommending safe, lifestyle, nutritional, and non-drug treatment options. Daniel, thank you so much for coming on to today. Gary, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. Sure. And the reason I've got you on is because you're my first rheumatologist, my first joint doctor to come on the show, and you've got some great lifestyle um, tips that I think you can share today to help people with pain, because pain is such a common condition in this world. So I'm, I'm looking forward to trying to get that information out of your brain today to help listeners. Okay. <laughs> so to begin with, just so in case someone doesn't know, what is a rheumatologist? Uh, it's a question that I'm always asked, Gary. Um, it's we're doctors who spread rumors. Sometimes we paint rooms. <laughs> it comes it comes from the Greek word, which was rumor, which was uh, the, the winds. Uh, but it's uh, it's really a badly named specialty because we do so much more than look after joints. Uh, room, the field of rheumatology looks after immune conditions such as rheumatoid arthritis and ankylosing spondylitis and lupus and psoriatic arthritis. Uh, We look after all the musculoskeletal injuries to the necks, backs, osteoarthritis, people with hand osteoarthritis and people with spinal conditions. Uh, And we look after uh, individuals with uh, uh, chronic pain issues. And it also spreads into the, the very difficult pain areas uh, which are hard to grasp, things like fibromyalgia. And uh, many of us are also look after individuals with chronic fatigue because it spreads the spectrum of fatigue, immune disorders, uh, and all the symptoms uh, across uh, our field of work. So uh, really, rheumatologists are generalists. We cover a big spectrum. Yeah, I didn't quite realize, too, with the autoimmune side of things so would you even be involved in um conditions like lyme disease or uh would you go as do people because that's quite a common thing for a lot of people well uh, fortunately lyme uh as as it's recorded in lots of europe and the united states is not available the tick is not uh, here in australia so we don't uh we don't really recognize it although there are uh, people who think that uh, their symptoms can be explained by tick-borne illness. and But I think with the coming discovery of the interaction of the microbiome and the gut with immune systems and with nervous systems, that uh, uh, all specialties are really moving to a unified understanding of the common causality of illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Uh, 
many people who present with fatigue, widespread pain, uh, sleep disruption, there are so many things that could be part of it and, and hidden infections are, are part of it as are immune disorders uh, can be part of it as well. So it's really a detective forensic analysis to try to work out what's the underlying driver of the symptoms uh, and then to develop a treatment protocol. Yeah, and that's what I like too where because um, I know a lot of people when they have pain, they, they typically just go straight to an orthopedic surgeon maybe thinking that that's the person who only deals with pain. But, you know, they, yes, they do deal with joint pain, but they also do joint replacements where, like you said, in your case, a rheumatologist might spend more investigative time to try source other level where the pain is and how to manage the pain. So it's it's another level to pain care, seeing a rheumatologist. Uh, the thing that we do mostly is that we we uh, partner with patients on their long journey. An orthopedic surgeon is dealing with acute interventions. They're often dealing with acute post-surgical pain or people who have chronic pain from an isolated perspective. And so uh, if you just looked at the numbers of orthopedic surgeons, for example, who are members of uh, a local pain society, they would be very few, um, whereas the physicians are really involved in, in, in chronic pain and understanding the nuances of pain. And the nomenclature of pain and what pain is, is extraordinarily complex. And this field is moving really rapidly because of new technologies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've been lucky enough to be, to go to some pain society conferences. And when, when you just listen to all the different doctors speaking about pain, you realize it's, it's a big subject and there's so many moving parts to it and then trying to understand and help to manage it for many conditions. So, and that's what yes. we're going to get into now. Um, so Great. to another question I'd like to find out is what inspired you to look at natural approaches to pain management and well-being? Uh, well, I certainly didn't get that in my medical training, but uh, it was through my own uh, discoveries, uh, my own interest in uh, personal health. Uh, I think I can blame my parents who are great role models. Um, we uh, always really very focused on uh, nutritional side of uh, living. I was growing up in that environment, so it, it, it was natural to explore the movement of the body, and uh, very early in my uh, teenage, uh, late teenage years when I started to have some sporting injuries, the rehabilitation approach took me through to uh, yoga and from yoga one adopts the uh, some of the philosophical underpinnings of yoga, which are really at the fundamental, what we now know as lifestyle medicine, has been practiced for thousands and thousands of years. Uh, so it's not new. We just uh, think we reinvented it. But mm. uh, um, the uh, program that that underpins the work that I do, which we call Pathways to Wellbeing, the Twelve Pathways. Um, you know, I borrowed all of that from original uh, uh, ancient techniques, really. And, and so, yeah, and yeah. that's that's why I think it's interesting for people to hear too is that. Um, it's it's up to you as a physician to want to look down that route at times it's not a part of the typical curriculum that you are you prescribe to patients it's um you looking 
and studying other avenues too. And uh, so with your pathways to wellness, um, I want to jump straight into that. What Because this is sort of your more natural approaches to that journey that you mentioned earlier to how where a patient's managing um, pain. And what are, what are some of the... Um, pathways that you mentioned in that in, in your program well just to like to take a step back gary and, and say that when someone's got a chronic problem they really need to take a business analytic approach to it and to work out what are the fundamental issues where are the gaps in what i'm doing uh, and so uh, develop this program in order for people to have a roadmap a template so if you want to get from, I think you're in London, if you want to get from London to Brighton, well, there's all sorts of ways that you can go. and You can take different roads and different pathways and you'll end up in Brighton if you follow the, your roadmap or GPS. So we developed a roadmap for people to know where they are in terms of lifestyle, what's, what's appropriate for nutrition, understanding the strong connection between the mind and body, what's the place of exercise and in parallel with exercise, what's the place of having a flexible body and a flexible mind, understanding how breathing and breath can immediately control your nervous system, uh, being aware of your environment, that's both now, we now understand, always understood the external environment was important, but now with the growth of understanding about the microbiome, we know that it's the internal environment that's so important. And then there's the internal environment of thinking and thoughts and feelings and emotions. And another aspect to the program is, is service to others. Just stepping outside, we know that just doing things for others is so health enhancing. Uh, the data is so strong. Uh, and we've got, there's a couple of others that we haven't mentioned, mm -hmm. uh, but there's 12 in all. And we, people have a sense that they can work through those and at least they know where they are in terms of the overall lifestyle strategies. So it's a it's a nice sort of checklist that someone could use to to look at. It, yes, and it, within that checklist, there are so many nuances. We, we you know we all know how complex nutrition is. Yeah, um, and there are complexes, uh, and for each individual, there's nuances that need to be teased out for nutrition. Um, so, but it is a template for people to say, okay, where, where am I with regard to my meditation practice? Um, and what's the latest data show that meditation can lengthen my lifespan and certainly my health span? And people kind of now understand the difference between lifespan and health span, uh, I think. And all these pathways are, there's, they've all got now really good quality evidence to show that at the very least, practicing these lifestyle strategies improves the quality of your life for longer than it would had you not practiced these things. Mm -hmm. So I think people are, are now going to be excited to, to check out this checklist to see what they could do to improve their lives. And I'm going to ask some questions about some of the aspects, as you said, because each, each pathway itself, there's so much more information that you can go down there. Um, when it comes to a dietary or nutrition point of view, do you have any particular preferences then when it comes to helping someone reduce inflammation in their body? Uh, I that's a really good question, and it's a question in which the answer is changing almost weekly. 
because the research into how nutrition interacts with our gut bacteria and how that influenced nutrition is was we're really learning about that at a rapid rate but for example we know that uh, polyphenols are anti-inflammatory they're antioxidants they block the effects of inf inflammation and polyphenols are as you know they're dark vegetables there's dark fruits as polyphenols in coffee there's a little bit of polyphenols in red wine but it's only recently that we discovered that humans can't use polyphenols they have to be processed first by the bacteria in their gut who then produce the chemicals which then produces the anti-inflammatory effects so it's uh we're starting to learn how best to use these things but there are a, a range of anti-inflammatory foods and anti-inflammatory diets what are the foods that promote inflammation and the the key ones are, are sugar a lot of the toxic oils the hydrogenated fats and and things that we thought we've always thought that fruit and vegetables were really good for anti-inflammatory but now we're learning that the fruits that we get are processed to be high in sugar and so it's a two-edged sword um, some of the farming fact, fact, factories, the, the fish, the chicken and the meat are all grain-fed with omega-6 grains. And we know that if uh, people have a high omega-6 level in their blood, that promotes inflammation, whereas if the ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 is in the right range, then that's anti-inflammatory. And uh, so... There's so much to do with that nutrition. Yeah, so it's food sourcing, food quality, and then how your body responds to the food that you put into it. Um, as you mentioned with your gut, uh, your gut biome, um, that's an element. So me thinking, oh, just I, I'll drink lots of good quality um, coffee just because that's full of polyphenols. But if my bacteria don't use that properly, then I'm not getting the, the best benefit out of it. Yes, so so I think there's some for anybody who's got an inflammatory disorder, for example, rheumatoid arthritis. But uh, that's in my area. But there are you know, 150 odd autoimmune diseases which all have as their basis inflammation. So these rules of nutrition are relevant for everyone, really. And mm -hmm. uh, so it's uh, firstly, it's a diet that's very high in fibre different fibers because bacteria we know now the good bacteria really grow on on fiber so fibers and we often we don't get enough fiber in our diet so focus on fiber focus on nutrient dense foods vegetables as much as you can uh, focus on good quality water um, polyphenols uh, and that's the foundation and then around that is maybe identifying if there are any particular foods that really uh, uh, you're uncomfortable ingesting. Mm. And as you mentioned... Uh, and that's it, a voyage of discovery. Yeah, and uh, something simple, I guess, with lots of diets is if they do make you feel better, as you said, it's it, they typically might get rid of some of those ultra-processed fats um, and high content of sugar, and that generally puts you already in a better pathway to to help your body i'd be interested to yes. know have you with the with the um increasing popularity of a low carb or a ketogenic diet 
Have you come across patients who use those modalities and found a positive change? Uh, I think that um, uh, more often than not, people who do a dietary change will in the beginning find quite amazing benefits because the first thing that happens when you change your diet is you change your gut flora and that could be very beneficial. Um, a, a low carbohydrate, uh, high healthy fat diet, uh, doesn't have to end up as being a ketogenic diet, but for certain groups of people, ketones are in many ways anti-inflammatory. So for somebody who's got a very difficult control inflammation, um, I might suggest a trial of that. Uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of data yet on whether uh, just removing the toxic foods and to, to eat a low-carbohydrate diet, you essentially can't eat anything in a box. Uh, so that's, that's really easy. If you've got to open a package to eat, then you essentially can't be eating low carbs. So that's a really simple thing. Um, so, uh, but I always recommend that people, uh, look at an anti-inflammatory diet. It's very, very sim simple to, to do it. And there's lots of online resources. The autoimmune paleo diet is just an example. There are many of them. Uh, some of them are very extreme but yeah. middle of the road works for most people. And the, the reason I'm just talking about diet to begin with is because the way I look at a diet is that's the biggest chronic chemical that we expose ourselves to maybe every day because food is, creates a chemical reaction. And so if there's one thing you want to try modify it to help manage pain or reduce inflammation is just look at the food that you eat. It does make a difference. Yeah. It's, I think that if someone's got an autoimmune disease, an inflammatory disease, a chronic pain condition, if they can only do one thing after meditating, I would, <laughs> I'd look at food. So, um, before we move on to mine, because I do want to talk about meditation, I mean, that's, uh, I think that's an underutilized and very powerful strategy. But just before we move on to that, are there any particular supplements? that you think are good for joint care or for pain management? Yes, well, I have a very, very select uh, recommendation for supplements, uh, assuming that individuals have been fully worked up and that they don't have simple deficiencies such as iron deficiency or B12 deficiency. And, and part, of the, part of the analysis that an individual needs to go through is they actually need to look at some numbers get some tests and, and really analyze forensically where are the deficits in their biochemistry. Not complex biochemistry, but simple biochemistry. Again, it's part of the roadmap. But assuming that people's chemistry, they don't need specific supplements to supplement their diet and to replenish deficits, the thing that's almost 100% deficit is not enough omega-3. So when my grandfather was alive, his omega-3 to omega-6 ratio would have been somewhere 1 to 2, 1 omega-3 to 2 omega-6, 1 to 5 perhaps. Now in Melbourne and in London, the average omega-3 to 6 ratio would be 1 to 20 or 1 to 25. 
and it's correcting that that can make a huge difference. And so a good quality, if you could only spend enough money for one supplement, it would be a good quality omega-3 fatty acid in anti-inflammatory doses. And a lot of the things that you get in the supermarkets and in some of the discount chemist stores, the omega-3s really very little. Uh, and so very little quality and very little of the anti-inflammatory components. So educating yourself about that is uh, really important. And if anybody wants to follow through on that, uh, I've got an article on that on my website. So welcome to have a look at that. Yeah, that would be great because, you know, I always think of that when looking at supplements is the, what's the clinical dosage. So not just take a supplement, but what dosage actually creates a clinical benefit. Um, and I, well, and a lot of people don't take, as you said, a high enough dosage potentially to get the clinical benefit. Yeah. Well, there's a fabulous blood test that's available to test that, but I know that it's not available uh, uh, easily. Uh, on your NHS, it's certainly not available here in Australia on our health scheme, and that is actually measuring the ratio. You can take a sample of blood and uh, the laboratory can tell you what your ratio is, and that's a fabulous biofeedback. Oh, wow, I'm 1 to 20. No wonder my joints are really sore. I wonder if I can get it to 1 to 5. Um, and three months later, you have the test and there you are. You're, you're where you should be. So uh, it's. Oh, if we could make that test freely available, uh, it would really promote people to eat well because at this stage, we really don't have any good tests that can give people instant feedback as to how they're doing with their nutrition, and that's lacking. And so talking then about using that omega test as a good biofeedback to see if you're potentially very inflamed or not what 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 are your thoughts on c-reactive protein because that's a very common blood inflammatory marker test that's done for people is it yes that's a that's uh that's a the standard test that a rheumatologist would use we use c-reactive protein extremely commonly it's kind of it's the number one go-to test to determine are we on track with our pharmaceutical approaches because some people just cannot control their inflammation uh, with lifestyle factors, uh, and thank goodness we need uh, medications. Um, people often come to me and say, do I really need this medication to bring my inflammation under control? And many people, the answer is yes. Um, uh, many years ago, I... Um, did some rheumatology training at St. Thomas's Hospital in London. And I'd say a third to a half of people with rheumatoid arthritis turned up in wheelchairs because the we had no way of controlling the inflammation in those days. And there was an introduction of a, a potent medication called methotrexate. And within 10 years, no one turned up to the clinic in a wheelchair. It's been dramatic. Uh, and so thankfully, I've my medical career has spanned the time when that medication was available. When I started, it was we didn't have it, and I know the difference that it can make. So my approach now is that if you have to use that medication, you get away with a lot less if you've got the lifestyle strategies covered. Mm -hmm. But C-react, coming back to your question, C-reactive protein is very, very important to monitor. And so if you 
so that if someone conquered their mega test, C-reactive protein is of value to see if you're inflamed or not, do you feel? Oh, ab- yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, I, I like people to know what their number is. I get them between sessions. We choose what number we're aiming for. They meditate on that number. They <laughs> do everything they can to get it down because there's such a powerful relationship between mind and body. Yeah. Okay. So just in, in case anyone listening has done a C-reactive protein or now wants to get one done, what, what type of number do you, would you like to see them below? Well, uh, the evidence is really strong that, that it's a linear graph. So one, two, three is really good. And then as it climbs, the higher you get, the more your mortality and morbidity is affected irrespective if someone doesn't have arthritis but they have a high crp and high crp occurs when you've got for example obesity because the fat cells release inflammatory markers that push up the c-reactive protein so the lower the number the better okay yeah so in this case it is a good thing to have a as low a number as possible on c-reactive you're aiming for the lowest number as possible yes okay great so now let's get on to mind. You know, I know you have a, a great passion on it and my passion's only growing even more since I've done my neurofeedback training with it uh, because now we're talking about how trying to change the way you think or, as you mentioned, meditate and just being aware of living in the moment has such a powerful effect on your well-being and even helping to control inflammation. So I'd like to find out from you then um, – is is it just meditation or like would you like to explain how you think of meditation for to people yes yeah, so well, let's take a step back cuz i think it's important for people to understand that humans are the only species that we know of who can change their physiology by mental processes uh and uh one of the groundbreaking work has been done by the nobel prize winner elizabeth blackburn familiar with her work on on telomeres and telomerase. No, I, yeah, I haven't, I haven't come across her work yet. So it might be worth just diverting just for a moment if we've got time to, to talk about that, is that uh, when, um, when we are young, we, our cells have got this fabulous ability to divide and replenish themselves. So for anyone who's got a young child who cuts their finger at night, by the morning, you can hardly see it was cut. Whereas somebody who's older, if they cut their finger in the morning, two weeks later, they're still saying, gee, this is slow to heal. And as we age, the uh, ability to replicate slows down. And that's controlled by the ends of our chromosomes. There's little caps like the plastic ends of a shoelace. If you imagine the plastic, the shoelace is our chromosomes and right at the end that keeps it all together the caps is the the telomeres and when they shorten the cell loses its ability to divide and elizabeth blackburn's work showed that people who meditated on a daily basis for a short period of time the telomeres didn't shorten and people who under enormous stress for a long period of time their telomeres shorten rapidly and that's a difference in the quality of life, difference in mortality, difference in morbidity. 
So this was just a really landmark, and she she was given the Nobel Prize for this incredible work. That is incredible to think just by meditating improved your telomeres. So yes, <laughs> and there's a whole lot of work by eating well, eating an anti-inflammatory diet. We think it has an effect on telomeres by uh, doing things for others. Expressing gratitude has an effect on the telomeres. So the, the literature on what helps us live a healthy life is expanding and we're down to the DNA level of what you do affects your DNA. So I guess this is with um, the anti-aging world too where they do they focus a lot on telomere length to see that the things that you are doing is are actually helping your body to live a better life because your telomeres are, are looking healthy. Well, it's a very difficult test to do and not many people are doing it. It's a, it's a coming test. Um, we can't get that test done in Australia, for example. Yeah. Uh, you can get it measured in the States, but uh, I think it's coming. Mm. So, yeah. yeah, so just coming back to the mind part of it then, so this is a, that's one element of why you feel meditation and taking care of your thoughts are so important to keep your body healthy. Yeah, there's there's a, a more immediate reaction to that, and that is the impact that stress has on immune system, immune function, and inv- inflammatory processes. Um, we all know uh, that if you have an acute shock, the body mobilizes all the inflammatory processes. In case uh, you're in battle and you've got a you've got a wound, the body is ready to. To, to fix that and, and help you survive. And so there's this incredible inflammatory response. And if we didn't have it, we wouldn't survive. So we need this inflammatory response. And the orchestra, the, the conductor of the orchestra is this hormone called cortisol, cortisol, which is expressed from the adrenal gland. But in our life where it's our to-do lists are never ending and there's uh, pressure and not enough time and not enough sleep, we end up with too much cortisol and uh, that contributes to it's estimated 85% of ill health can be in some way connected to an excess daily secretion of cortisol Uh, and having a mindful practice such as meditation uh, rebalances the cortisol that comes from the adrenal gland so very powerful practice to calm the body and reset. Uh, So I think it's a foundation practice and it's been a practice that uh, has stood the test of time. Ancient cultures just had it as part of their daily rhythm Uh, and around the world we're learning that we need to do this as well. So I like that already just again hearing, so we've talked about meditation increasing this thing called telomere length, but now also saying it actually changes the hormones in your body, like your cortisol production. And and I think that was a great example you gave about the battlefield scene or if someone is attacked by someone, um, that you have an immediate fight and flight response. Your, your, your system goes into this hyperstate, goes, oh, I need to run away or I need to defend myself. And so there's a chemical cascade that happens. But as you said, the problem is that we live in a world now where that chemical cascade is just always dripping out and there's no stop button. And a part of helping to create the stop button is by changing your mindset and, and meditation is one way of helping to do that. And that pathway 
one of the things that we now know is that everything is linked. The thought you have is uh, uh, instantly picked up by every cell in the body. Um, the uh, the work um, uh, of endorphins, it was found that within an instant of having a thought, you could pick up the endorphins if you had a, a blood drawer. Uh, within 10 seconds, uh, the endorphins can be picked up in the blood test. So every thought you have. So one of the things I often say to people is you are what you think. So you better know what you're thinking. Because <laughs> uh, I, I like I like this too. That there's a real fancy word, um, and it's it's a field that I've enjoyed looking at too, which is psychoneuroimmunology or psychoneuroendocrinology. And yes. I just loved it, where it's basically saying we're studying it like through cytokines, which are blood markers like C-reactive protein. We're we're measuring these things to see yes, what you think actually has a physical effect on your body, and I. I think we've always, as you said, we've always known that to be a truth, but we're just having to quantify it to another level. And the psychoneuroimmunology, the neuro has really been the the underdog in that triple. And what we know is the how powerful the autonomic nervous system is. And uh, I. Are you, you're obviously in your work, you know what the autonomic nervous system is, but a lot of people actually don't know that we have two parts to the nervous system. There's the voluntary nervous system, and I wave at you, and there's the involuntary system, which is currently controlling our heart rate, uh, the size of our pupils, whether we're sweating, whether we need to go to the bathroom. All of that background information is called the autonomic nervous system. and that's got two arms. There's the fight or flight response, which is called the sympathetic nervous system. And then there's the relax and recover response, which is the parasympathetic nervous system. And in the psychoneuroimmunology, it's understanding that the sympathetic and parasympathetic is, is often out of balance. So one way to think about that is uh, if you're trying to accelerate with your car up the hill, your accelerator is the sympathetic nervous system, and if you happen to have the brake on at the same time, you go nowhere. Or if the accelerator cable is broken, you go nowhere. Or if you've got no petrol, you go nowhere. Or if the handbrake is, 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 is not working. So the nervous system can malfunction in lots of ways, and where we draw back to meditation and breath work and relaxation therapies, balances that autonomic nervous system and uh, you were telling me that you had the uh, ceo of made the aura ring mm -hmm. we were discussing that before well this is one of the first times that people can now moment by moment know the balance between their sympathetic and parasympathetic system it's called the uh, heart rate variability test uh, and there's quite a few now quantifiable things. As soon as we get stressed and out of balance, our breathing rate goes up. So when you're relaxed, you might breathe six times a minute. Then when you're stressed, it's 12 times a minute. So there are things, devices now that detect your breathing. And when you're stressed, it rings on your phone and you say, aha, I'm talking to Gary. Uh, 
and he stresses me, um, maybe I should just do some deep breaths before I have my interview. And fabulous feedback. Yeah, I think that is the power of using tech to change your physiology is getting that biofeedback. And that's all a part of the N equals one and biohacking is just actually going, all right, so when I am in this situation, my body has an abnormal response, which is I don't like, it's not good for me yet, but at least I'm getting awareness now, which comes back again to that mindfulness that you mentioned. That's what it's about is just that ability to be aware of what's happening in the moment and how powerful that is. But we have to practice to be able to do that. It doesn't just happen for most of us. No. Yeah. No. Well, uh, it happens for children, but we lose it. So (laughs) that's where I do joke at times that we need to find our inner child. And maybe that's another part of it is that when you're in, when you're in that state, you, there's so many benefits to being back in that playful state of mind again. Um, and I'd, I'd, I'd be interested. Um, do you use other sensory inputs too to make someone mindful or to change their their mindset? So an example I always try to recommend to people is something called goosebump music. So what I mean by that is that when you if you're having a really bad day, you jump in your car and you're driving, but you put on that that song that bring, takes you to a place again. It gives you goosebumps. It take, it's a happy place. Um, that was like a, a real quick fix to try change that psychoneuroimmunology, that inflammatory response that you might be going through. So in that case, hopefully using an auditory input to try give you a little bit of energy, but then hopefully then you could practice some mindfulness whilst you're whilst you're feeling in a slightly happier state. Well, we use uh, all the senses. So uh, we have, because what you, with your goosebump music, what's, what's actually happening is you're immediately changing the balance between your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. And there are so many ways of doing that. You can do that within 30 seconds using the breath. You can do that by smelling an essential oil. Uh, you can do that by smelling your mother's favorite meal that you really loved, uh, waking up memories of a calming time. You can do it immediately by visualizing uh, when you were really relaxed, say, for example, at a beach. So using all the senses and having a really deep and comprehensive toolbox of strategies that you can call on at any time if the sound's not working, then the breath will. If the breath's not working, then the smell will. And, and uh, uh, when we use the touch uh, and then you use taste, all of these things can change the immediacy of what's happening. And uh, in chronic pain, we uh, use the senses a lot to change the state because the state of the brain powerfully influences the intensity of the experience of pain and you can change that and uh, virtual reality for example is now a wonderful way to rapidly change the state put on a pair of glasses and suddenly you're in another world and virtual reality is moving very much into the chronic pain state but i did want to just uh I was wanted to let you know about some really exciting research. We talked about the balance between the autonomic nervous system and and the vagus nerve. Do you recall from mm-hmm. your anatomy that uh, the vagus nerve is the large nerve that goes from the brain 
into the body and it's surveying the body, getting feedback, feeding it back to the brain. Most of the information is going north and a little bit of the information is going south. Well, there's fabulous research now that what they've done is they've inserted an electrode against the vagus nerve in people with rheumatoid arthritis, switched the, the device on, and the C-reactive protein plummets. Extraordinary work. That, that is and, powerful. Wow. Yes, and there's now the first double-blind controlled trial because they've shown in open-label studies. And there's a device that's no bigger than your phone that for people with headache already, people with migraine headache, stimulating the vagus nerve makes a difference. You put this little device against the vagus nerve and zap it a couple of times, three times a day, and it controls headache. So it's an exciting time to be a biohacker. <laughs> yeah, so because um, maybe some people have heard of the, the concept of vagal tone and doing things to improve vagal tone. And now this sounds like an electronic way of changing your vagal tone. Yes, uh, I think there are a lot of a lot safer, a lot, <laughs> a lot less costly ways of dealing with the vagal tone, and and that's and that's what we do. And and you can demonstrate that uh, absolutely instantaneously using some of these tracking devices uh, to measure now heart rate variability. And there's lots of them now: chest straps, rings. Uh, you can even there's even one you put your finger on your on your smartphone, and you can. You know, it's not that sophisticated, but accurate enough that if you have uh, a bowl of ice cream and you measure before and after, there's an absolute instantaneous change. Yeah. So again, just just all of that self experimentation to see. Or I yes. think this is doing something to me, but now we've got ways of saying yes, it is doing something to you, and you we can measure that at home and. So these are all great actionable tips that someone listening to thinking, how can I try and manage my pain or improve my inflammatory levels? I mean, you're just sharing so many great tips here that someone could try and start doing today. Yeah, I think the there is so much now that's available. The difficulty is is sorting sorting the facts because none of these strategies can be employed uh, without an energy cost, a time cost, and there's obviously a financial cost. And so um, I think that the best way that people can negotiate this is to align themselves with a knowledgeable guide. It's like if I'm going into the outback of Australia, uh, I want to be with a knowledgeable guide who knows where the next water source is. Uh, and uh, I walk with that guide. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not that the guide does the walking for me, mm. but uh, I'm guided. And so uh, I think that this is a missing link for a lot of people as they think they have to do it on their own. Uh, they search the internet. Um, Dr. Google can give some fabulous advice, but can also go down some rabbit holes. And so this is where you see a benefit for someone who has a health mentor or a health coach or even uses their uh, physician of some sort as a like a health coach to help guide them to understand right in your situation the best benefit is probably do this now versus maybe some of these other modalities first yes yeah you know and the question you asked me previously you know what's the best supplement to take 
people come in with with quite a lot of supplements to their appointments and we'd go through them and say well you know you could save some money by not having that one. that one's not essential and this one's not essential but in your situation i would stick with this one mm. and so just guiding people to achieve that uh is uh, i think one of the best things that we can do mm-hmm. apart from uh, never forgetting uh the physician hat which is to uh apply the highest quality medicine that we can provide both in terms of diagnosis uh plan of treatment and where necessary use the 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 medications to achieve uh, an outcome that can't be achieved otherwise mm. and uh, it's ne- not an all or none and, and and the way i work is is i balance it all out as best possible Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great approach. Like you said with the methotrexate example, where yes, you can do all the lifestyle interventions, but you know you actually still, in your situation, need this extra help, which we have this tool available to assist you to get to a better place. One of the things that I often tell patients is that if they've got an acute inflammation and it looks like rheumatoid arthritis, we've got about six months to bring the inflammation under control. And if we can't do it within six months, then the outcome 15 and 20 years later is critically dependent on that time frame. And so in that first six months, we might do whatever we can to put the bushfire out. And that means medication because all the lifestyle interventions take time to work. So it's, uh, we can always, um, put in new carpet if we've saved the building. Uh, that analogy of fire is, mm-hmm. is often a really good one to think about, that metaphor for inflammation being a fire, and sometimes you need the fire truck. Mm-hmm. And in the beginning, in the early phase, when people are most frightened, most cautious, most worried, the data shows that we need to use whatever means to control the inflammation because if we can bring that C-reactive protein down within six months, then the outcome is very favourable. Mm. And it, but again, it's nice to hear that once they're in that state, we have these pathways, as you mentioned, and then that can help. Have you seen, I guess, in, in patients where they've been able to come off chronic medication because of lifestyle changes? Oh, absolutely, yes. The, the literature is not that strong in improving that because there's not really been comprehensive uh, double-blind trials. But uh, there was a uh, – and it's been largely ignored. This, is a, this was some research from Norway, I recall, uh, maybe as far back as the early 80s or the 70s, where they took people with severe rheumatoid arthritis and they um, fasted them for four days then they put them on a, a, what was a vegetarian diet. And, and in those days, I would imagine that the grains uh, that they ate were not full of pesticides. It was still uh, kind of fairly natural eating. And at the end of 12 months, those people were uh, really very good compared to a matched cohort. Uh, and uh, um I did a similar study where I, with just a group of patients and put them on a very strong uh, calorie-restricted vegetarian diet and all of their CRPs went down, but none of them chose to stay on the diet. They chose the medication. 
Mm, so that's another element to the uh, the care program that's that you have to take. Happen. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So you, you may do lifestyle modifications and see a change, but then people fall back into old habits and then they find it easier to maybe take medication as part of their lifestyle choice. Yes. Yeah. Yes, but at least at least now with social media and and this explosion of of health interest, uh, most people uh, now know, for example, that sugar is not great for you. You know, it's a universal around the world. Everybody knows that if you have uh, a sugary drink, well, it's not it's not great for you. And every now and again, it's no problem. But as a routine, uh, you're setting yourself up for issues. So there's lots of knowledge now. It's the implementation mm-hmm. that's uh, still still a challenge. So talking about implementation, you have a program, do you, to help people um, who are listening anywhere in the world that they can start, particularly with the meditation? Yes, we've, uh, it's called a, um, a meta, uh, Pathways to Wellbeing Meditation Audio Guide. And what we've done is, is uh, uh, really tried to teach people how to meditate in a way that as they work through the program, they don't need a meditation app. They don't that basically teach someone how to ride a bike and then forever they can ride the bicycle on their own. They don't need training wheels. And that was our, our goal in doing that. So that's available uh, on our website. And uh, we've made the uh, first two pathways uh, freely available for people. They can download and see if they like it and, and then uh, uh, obtain the program. And and also those pathways that we were talking about earlier with diet and mind and exercise that that you also have uh, a PDF available for people to to download. Do you? Yes, uh, on on our website I've got uh, a, an extensive library of issues from nutrition. All the pathways are uh, expanded, and as new research comes on, uh, the best way I can connect with the people who come to see me is through the website and newsletters and the blog. Uh, and so, um, uh, it, um, just, uh, just today, cause it's a pretty rainy day in Melbourne, I decided to have an in day. Uh, I just put up a blog on telomeres. So if anybody wants to look at what we've talked about, uh, that's available on the website. Just go to the blog. Fantastic. So, cause we're coming up on our time now. Uh, what are the social links and what is the website that we were talking about? If you'd like to share that. Yeah, so the website is Lewis Institute, all one word, dot com dot au. Um, and we've got a Facebook page, which is called Pathways to the Numerical Two, Pathways to Wellbeing. And, uh, we're on Twitter at Paths, P-A-T-H-S, to Wellbeing. Uh, and I've also, I've followed you on Twitter. That's how, um, I, I try to keep up to date with you because you do share some, some interesting things on there too. Great. And- yeah, and so um, for anyone listening, I'll put all of these links in the show notes and um, in the description area. Uh, Daniel, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing such actionable tips today. I mean, we didn't go down all the pathways, but there's so many good starting points, I think, for people who are in pain or want to change their lifestyle. They could already start looking at that checklist. And of course, you know, use your website as a resource to go even further down the rabbit hole. Great. Okay. Thanks, thanks very much, Gary. Sure. Bye now. Bye.